And if I do this morning to turn to 2 Corinthians 13, this is our last sermon in Corinthians for a while. And as I was studying our passage this morning, uh, it reminded me of a breakfast that I had uh, with a bunch of pastors back in college. And as pastors do, they talked about how their churches were doing, uh, what's going on, what's healthy, what's unhealthy. And this passage reminded me of a pastor of one of the biggest churches there, I would guess they had around a thousand people, who said basically, uh, I'm worried that right now when people come to our church, they aren't experiencing the love of Christ. And that raised some eyebrows. Why? Well, apparently there had been a conflict in the church that just wouldn't go away. Uh, but for, an, for a very interesting reason. There had been an argument over something, and I don't remember what it was exactly, and the leadership had actually picked a side and said, this side is the correct side. This is the side we're going with. The other side submitted to that decision. They didn't agree with it, but they submitted to it. So why didn't the fight go away? Because a few of the people on the right side wanted more public recognition that they were right than they got. And they were going around to visitors and they were going around to other people making sure that everyone knew that they were on the right side. And don't you think that these other people should admit that? And don't you think I should get some credit from the pulpit for that? You see, in this conflict, the issue had become, as it all too often does, about winning and getting a trophy and not about loving Jesus or being faithful to him. And I wish I had known 2 Corinthians 13 better back then, because if I had, I would have seen the connections between the Corinthian church and his church. And I could also have commended this pastor for faithfully applying the test that Paul talks about uh, in our passage this morning. And I also would have known how to advise him on the steps he could take to cultivate Jesus-centered relationships rather than me-centered relationships. Relationships that are focused around faithfulness to Christ as the ultimate goal rather than winning or getting trophies. But better late than never. Uh, so this morning, we're going to talk about how Paul models maturity in conflict by keeping Jesus at the center of the church and at the center of his relationships. And we're going to see how we can do that too by looking at what the test is, how to pass that test, and then we're going to end with how to cultivate Jesus-centered relationships rather than me-centered relationships. So let's read 2 Corinthians 13. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about all of this together. First, 2 Corinthians 13. Paul ends his letter like this. He says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, 
But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thus far, the reading of what I think can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we very much want to have a church body that is focused around Jesus and relationships that are centered around Jesus. And Lord, we know that your word, through the working of your spirit, can produce this in us. And so we ask, Lord, as we consider this word this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Uh, so as we've been talking about, the Corinthian church is very much in conflict. There's conflict about what to do with unrepentant sinners. There's conflict about what to do with repentant sinners. There's conflicts about money. There's conflicts invol involving abusive leaders, right? The so-called super apostles. And there's conflicts about whether or not to let Paul help them with these conflicts. There's fights about the fighting, <laughs> If, if our series has done nothing else, I, I hope it's shown you that Jesus' church in the Apostles' Day is not too different from Jesus' church in our own day. Which is why this test that Paul talks about in verse 5 is so important to the church today. But before talking about what this test is, I want to be very clear about what it is not when Paul says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize that you yourselves, uh, this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. When Paul says that, here is what he is not saying. He's not saying each of you individually look into your hearts and see if you love Jesus enough to be a part of his church. He's not telling you to go on a spiritual retreat and examine every decision and motive and every thought that you've ever had and see whether or not it was faithful enough to Jesus. That is not his point. And praise God, that's not his point. Uh, the Puritans talked about that a lot in their writings, and they were wrong. Don't follow them. Grace is real. Uh, here's the fact. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And as I like to tell people, that doesn't only mean that the heart can hide bad motives and make us unjustifiably proud. It also means that the heart can hide godly motives and make us unjustifiably guilty. Our sinfulness 
and our godliness are always in some sense a mystery to ourselves, which is why in Jeremiah 17, where that verse is found, we're reminded that it's the Lord who ultimately knows the hearts and that our calling isn't to try and totally understand ourselves and act as our own judge, but to give ourselves to Jesus, to submit ourselves to his word and trust that he will empower faithfulness as we seek to follow him by faith. Pastor Matt, don't get off track. You're right. I'm sorry. Anyway, Paul's point isn't that we need to individually explore all of our motives and whether or not we have enough faith to be saved. His point is that as a church, as a congregation, we need to examine whether or not people experience Jesus's love when they are with us. His point is that as a church, we need to examine whether or not people experience Jesus' love when they are with us, when people visit us, when they listen to us talk to each other and about each other and about the outside world, when we talk about other Christians and non-Christians, can we honestly say that in those corporate gatherings, people have had the opportunity to hear Jesus' love? When people come to our worship services, when they stay for our fellowship lunches or attend our outreach events, can we honestly say that they have had the opportunity to feel the love of Christ? Is it obvious that Jesus is here in this community or not? That's his point. How do we know that's his point? Well, first, we know it's his point because he's not talking to uh, any particular individual. He's talking to the church as a whole. In verse 1, Paul talks to the whole congregation, not to certain individuals within the congregation. And in verse 5, he's still talking to the whole congregation. And in verse 6 and in verse 7, all the way down to verse 14. But there's more than that. Paul uses two words for test. And you can see that very helpfully in our translations. At the beginning of verse 5, we're called to examine ourselves. That's a form of testing. And in the middle of verse 5, we're called to test ourselves. And every time Paul uses these words, it comes from the way that God uses them in the Old Testament. Without preaching uh, two sermons here, well, three sermons, you're kind of technically going to get two sermons, but without preaching a third sermon, uh, let me just say that in the Old Testament, the words for test come from the world of metalworking and jewelry. And testing is simply the way of determining the purity of gold or silver. And also... It's a way to purify them further, which is why God will talk about testing the faith of his people. Testing does not mean that God is curious whether or not you have faith. I wonder if Matt really believes. Let's find out. That's not what it means. God knows if I have faith or not. No, testing me is is God wants to show us, show us how strong our faith is. And by doing that, not shame us, but help us grow stronger in the faith. Testing is not a curse, it's a grace. It's a way that God helps us see how faithful we are to him so that we can rejoice in what he's done in our lives and the faithfulness that we have and mature in what's left unfinished. That's the point of examinations and tests here. How real is Jesus' presence in our fellowship? When people visit, are they getting the 24 karat gold of Jesus' love? And we also know at this point because Paul says uh, we're to test ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. 
Notice something. Paul does not say, test yourselves to see if you have faith. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And in the faith is the normal way Paul talks about living according to God's commands. It's a way of describing obedience. Are you living together in the way that Jesus has commanded you to live? Being in the faith is about how we live together as disciples of Christ. And Paul actually, earlier in the letter, gave them a living example of what he meant back in chapter 8, verse 22. I'm going to read that for you. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 22. Paul tells the Corinthians, uh, he reminds them that we are sending with them, that's with Titus uh, and some of the other emissaries, we are sending with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. And the context tells us that he's earnest in his love for Jesus and about Jesus' love for them and about his desire that they grow together, not only in Christ's love, but in the way they express that love to those who are around them. Paul is taking that same love that's been revealed to them in this individual's brother's words and life that they have felt and heard and experienced when he's around. And here at the end of the letter, he's basically saying, your church's love for Jesus ought to feel like his love for Jesus for you. When people walk into your church, when they listen to you guys talk, when they sit down with you, is Jesus' love evident to them? Do you remember this brother? Because it was evident to you when he treated you that way. And that question then brings us to our second point, which is passing the test. Because unlike school tests, where you take the test, you pass, you fail, and then you get your grade. (laughs) Because this test is about finding out how pure something is and then making it more pure, the good news for the Corinthians is that if, if they failed the test, which Paul doesn't seem to think is likely, but opens it up as a possibility, if they fail the test completely, the solution isn't despair, It's to repent and to fill the absence of Christ's love with the actions and the words of Christ's love. And that's where the final verses 11 through 12 come in. I'm going to read those again. He says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And I know that these exhortations kind of seem to come out of nowhere, but again, just remember the context that we've been looking at for however long we preach through 2 Corinthians. Uh, There's fear, distrust, infighting. There's unrepentant sinners who need to repent. There's repentant sinners who need forgiveness. There's abusive leaders who are suing and hitting people. And there are the people Paul is trying to save from those abusive leaders. So with that, how likely is it that when folk walked into church on a Sunday, let's see what this is all about, or whether maybe they're not visitors, maybe they're members. When they walked into church on Sunday, how many of them do you think experienced the redemptive, loving presence of Jesus in powerful, wonderful, life-changing ways as soon as they walked in the door? (laughs) Right? How warmly welcomed were they Uh, How emotionally and spiritually safe did they feel? How unified did they find the body? 
How many left church able to see Jesus' presence more clearly in their life, excited and empowered to humbly follow him, just like all the people around me do? How many left rejoicing that they were a part of this body and that Jesus had saved these people along with them? I am willing to bet, and I don't gamble, but I'm willing to bet a sizable amount of money, not many. (laughs) So what Paul does here at the end of a letter is direct them very intentionally and specifically to the kinds of things they need to do in order for the love of Christ to be known and heard and felt by the members and by the visitors. The things that they needed to do in order to not only revere, but reveal, but even purify their love for Jesus. I want to look at them just kind of one by one. The first thing he says is rejoice. Now, by that, Paul doesn't mean, and given the letter, cannot mean, pretend everything's okay, right? No, going back to the very first chapter, he means look for the way that Jesus is with you. Look at his saving hand in your life and in the life of those around you. Look at the way he's holding us together, even with all the craziness and suffering and hardship we are experiencing. Look at Jesus. Look at his gifts. Look at his comfort. Look at his faithfulness and all the assured promises that he keeps giving to you anew every day and find joy in that. Find joy in the real life presence and help of Jesus. My friends, if we're going to pass the test here at Grace, like the Corinthians, we need to keep our eyes on the, open to the goodness and presence of Jesus and learn to see his goodness even in the middle of very hard and tragic things so that we can mourn as those who have hope and speak well of Christ, speak well of his presence, and even speak well of his people even while we endure hard things in life. We're also to aim at restoration. And this goes directly to one of the big issues Paul talked about at the very beginning, uh, which is those who were repentant but weren't being welcomed back, and those who were sinning and didn't want to repent. Here Paul says, do you want to pass the test? Love sinners the way that Jesus does. Aim for restoration. When people sin and they repent, forgive and welcome them back openly, publicly, warmly, with greetings and words and body language of hospitality, things like hugging them or kissing them on the cheek and greeting, which we're going to talk about in a second. When people sin and they don't repent, love them enough to call them out of darkness and back to life, but also love them enough to Walk with them if they're willing to help shepherd them out of sin. Love them enough to care for their soul and to care for their relationship with Jesus. Aim for restoration. Next is comfort one another, which has just been a huge theme throughout the letter. And all I'm going to say here is Jesus actually loves us by being with us in suffering and hardship. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we a church that suffers with people and brings them comfort? Are we empathetic like Jesus is empathetic? Do we sit 
as Jesus does alongside his people when they weep and weep with them? Do we direct their hearts to the steadfast love of God and the faithfulness of Christ when people are feeling anchorless and tossed to and fro by the waves or not? If we do, we are comforting people the way that Christ himself comforts them. He goes on from there to say, agree with one another. Now, it's hard, a little hard to see in the translation here, but rather than calling them to have agreement on everything, which I think is impossible, uh, I don't think it's possible to get everyone to agree on whether or not, like, how I should cut my hair or not. I mean, how many people, <laughs> if you have three people in a room, you have five opinions on how something should be done. I don't think that's his point. Instead, I think Paul is referencing his first letter where he told them to think like adult Christians, to have a mature mindset when it comes with dealing with differences. Or as he's been saying throughout the letter, be mature in Christ. Handle your difficulties with prayer and with patience and with Christ-likeness. And related to that is this next command, live at peace with one another and the God of peace and love will be with you. To live at peace means that we don't let our differences divide us. Or more positively, it means to cultivate a culture of gracious acceptance that says we may vote differently, look differently, dress differently, spend money differently, have different hobbies, have different vocations, but you know what? I'm not going to let those differences divide us or chill the warmth of our fellowship because Jesus has welcomed you as you are, has given you the personality he's given you, has given you the life experiences and the Bible verses you've memorized and everything else you have to form your opinion about the world in the way he's given you. And you are not my servant. You're his servant. My calling is to welcome you in his name and to love you and to enjoy the differences if possible, to live at peace, to have that, that, sorry, I'm trying to not preach a fourth sermon, to have the kind of communal peace that was there at the very beginning of creation where everything is different and yet one and love with each other. Last one. I care about this one a lot. I need you guys to understand this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. If any of you try and kiss me after the service, <laughs> we are going to have problems. Whenever I or anyone I know preaches on this passage, someone comes up like, I need to kiss the pastor. It's biblical. No. <laughs> this is a cultural greeting. Handshakes, fist bumps, all good. Those weren't invented yet. The kiss is not something we need to do. Don't do it to me. Um, but the principle behind this is very much something we need to do. So with all of the fighting, do you think everyone was greeted by everyone else? No way. <laughs> you can picture this. It's not hard. Each group greets other members of their group. Right, And then the groups themselves, they sit in different places in the church. They're not saying hello. They give each other the side eye. Right, like That doesn't look like Jesus. What does Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? We heard this recently. 
If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And then Jesus modeled this for us, didn't he? By greeting tax collectors who were traitors who loved Rome, zealots who wanted to kill tax collectors. And so, by the way, when you have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, and you talk about living at peace with one another and agreeing with one another, like that's an example that's, there's more hatred there than Democrats and Republicans because zealots actually took an oath to kill collaborators. So Jesus did some work there. <laughs> Jesus greets tax collectors. He greets zealots. He greets sinners. He greets Pharisees. He greets prostitutes. He greets demon-possessed people. He greets Roman soldiers. And most especially and pro prominently in my mind, he greets Judas. Does it ever strike you that when Jesus comes, Judas comes to betray Jesus in the garden, Jesus says, calls him friend? He calls him friend. If we're going to be a church where the love of Jesus can be experienced, then universal welcome in his name, even to people who hate us and want to murder us, which thankfully I don't think any of us have. That's what we're called to do. How much more people in church who annoy us bother us. We have different agreements. We need to greet one another. And if we do these kinds of things, and if we test ourselves for the presence of these things from time to time, we will be ensuring that Jesus and his love and his grace are at the center of our fellowship together. But that's not all that we see here. Uh, and here's their second sermon. I wanted this to be the, the end of the series, so I'm cramming this in here. We also see Paul model how we can individually cultivate Jesus-centered relationships and not me-centered relationships. So if this is how, as a church, we build Jesus into the center, Paul also models this really interesting way of thinking about how Jesus is at the center of his individual relationships. So in verses 8 through 10, Paul talks in a way that I think can be very hard to understand when it's translated literally as our translation has it. I love literal translations. They're generally far superior to idiomatic translations. Um, but sometimes idiomatic ones are better. Uh, so our translation literally says this. This is verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it again. It says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Now, I know that communicates a little bit, but it's also like hard, and I am sensitive to time. And so rather than trying to spend like 30 minutes going through and helping you understand like how everything works, I made my own translation of this passage. This is an idiomatic translation. This is the Matt Barker standard version. Uh, it's not anywhere, but just listen. This is what it says. This is, this is what I see when I read the Greek text. Paul says, I hope you'll realize that we've been showing Christ's love to you and will welcome us back. But what we pray for most is that you would follow Jesus and pass this test. So even if you think that we don't love you, but you end up following Jesus and passing this test, we'll be happy because we want you to follow the truth of God's word. And if you follow God's word, but we end up losing our relationship, we'll still be glad because you'll be living with Jesus and showing his love to everyone around you. That's what Paul is saying. 
no matter what happens, even if we end up losing each other, but you follow Christ, we'll be happy. Your relationship with Jesus, Paul says, is more important to me than your relationship with me. And even if I lose you, but you stay with Jesus and follow him and learn to express this kind of communal love better in your congregation, I will find happiness in that. And so from there, I'm going to end with this. Uh, As a pastor, I have had plenty of opportunities to go to people and to call them to repent of sin. And sometimes that means saying hard things, not mean things, but hard things, hard conversations, emotionally fraught talks. And a few times what's happened is that a person eventually repents of their sins, but then they'll tell me, Matt, I just can't hear you talk to Jesus, hear you talk to me about Jesus right now. Uh, It's too raw. It's too hard. Uh, Your face, your voice, it reminds me of the sin. It reminds me of the shame. It reminds me of the hurt. And even though I've repented, like my relationship with you is just not something that can continue in the way that it was. And as a young minister, I'm not going to lie, like that really, really bothered and hurt me. Uh, I mean, I was right. Uh, Why am I still being blamed? Like, I didn't sin. You sinned. And then I helped you get out of sin. Like, why am I being kicked out of our relationship when I'm the one who went to go try and save our relationship? (laughs) Or like I said at the beginning, why am I not getting the trophy? And I stand here as living proof that spiritual growth is possible. Because over the years, Jesus has taught me something. It's just not about me. It's just not about me. It's about him. And the most important thing is that you follow Jesus. And if I have to give up my relationship with you for a time in order for that to happen, in order for you to be comfortable in a church and worship him and restore and have your faith put back together, then that's what I will do. Because the reality is, as we've talked about throughout our series, Human beings are complicated, situations are complex, and our calling is not to make them simple, but to commend these complicated people and these complex situations into God's hands and not our own, and trust that Jesus, who does all things well, will bring about some kind of healing in his time and his way. And so the way that we give people into God's hands, the way that we cultivate Jesus-centered relationships rather than me-centered relationships is to make the other person's faithfulness to Jesus the center of our relationships and not ourselves. To cultivate an attitude that says, your relationship with Christ is more important than me being right or even, thankfully not often, but it can happen, me being in your life. How can anyone do that? Well, the same way that we pass the test, the same way we do all the other things that we've heard Jesus call us to throughout this beautiful, wonderful letter, we entrust ourselves and each other to Jesus. We trust that he does all things well, that his commands are good, that his word is life, and that he raises the dead. And that because he is with us, though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy will come in the morning. And that while we wait for that joy, 
we can learn to see that he's present with us by his Holy Spirit, through his word, and through his people, comforting us with the gospel of Christ. I hope you all have loved this letter as much as I have. I hope you make it a part of your regular discipleship reading. We'll come back to it again, I'm sure, in a, in a few years. Uh, but for now, I'll just say amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we very much want to be a church that passes the test, where people hear and feel the love and grace of our Lord Jesus when they are with us. So please help us to put Jesus at the center of our congregational life and of our relationships with each other. Please help us to greet one another with peace, even when we're in conflict. Please help create and grow a culture of gracious acceptance and welcome. Please help us to comfort one another and to aim for restoration in our life together. And please help us to see Jesus and his presence in our life with one another so that no matter what the storms might be around us, we can be found rejoicing in his presence and in his faithfulness to us and encouraging one another with his love and word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.